You are Amelia Mignonette Thermopolis Renaldi, Princess of Genovia. Me? A, a princess? Shut up! Welcome to the graveyard slot where we talk about movies past their prime time. Here, we revisit old favorites with a fresh perspective to see if they deserve more credit or if they should stay buried. I'm Sohini. And I'm Sarah. And today we're talking about The Princess Diaries. Based on the books by Meg Cabot, Princess Diaries follows 15-year-old Mia Thermopolis who discovers her royal ancestry and fate when her estranged grandmother turns out to be the Queen of Genovia. It was released in 2001 and directed by Gary Marshall, who did The Dick Van Dyke Show, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Pretty Woman, and Runaway Bride. So The Princess Diaries is another one of our childhood favorites that we've returned to time and time again. And at the time of its release, it was actually commercially very successful, becoming one of the highest grossing movies of 2001. The audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes is also fairly high at almost 70%. But we were quite surprised to see that the critic rating is 49%. So this led us to question whether it's nostalgia that's clouding our judgment or whether such a low rating really is warranted for this movie. Today we're going to try and set our rose-tinted glasses aside and investigate what cemented this movie as a classic, at least for us, as well as what potential pitfalls might be dragging it back. A word that keeps popping up in reviews that I found is hackneyed. Yeah, same. And one review I found was from Chicago Tribune, and it reads, manages to wring some originality out of its fairy tale plot. This freshness compensates for the expected hackneyed qualities in the Cinderella tale. Which is, I guess, a backhanded compliment? <laughs> a mixed review, to say the least. It makes it sound like it's quite a feat. <laughs> Like, it tried really hard to get some droplets of originality. Yeah, you're right. That is the impression that it's giving, which is surprising to me, I think, because the movie feels very natural. It feels a little bit like everything just magically fell into place in the sense that it doesn't seem forced, especially like the comedy. And maybe it is thanks to the performance, actually, because another review I found from the Miami Herald says that if Andrews oozes regal poise and Hathaway rage movie star allure and they do credit the actresses not this flimsy fairy tale so a lot of the reviews seem to think that the script is lacking but the actors make up for it which I don't think I quite agree with to me it feels like all of the cogs in this machine kind of magically fit together and enhance each other which is kind of part of why I love the movie so much so it is quite surprising to me that for critics at the time that didn't seem to be the case it seems like they see the stellar cast as a saving grace instead of just one of the many excellent traits of this movie. Yeah, I remember when reading reviews seeing a similar sentiment expressed among a lot of critics. And I think aside from critiquing the plot and the dialogue, another thing I saw one of the reviews talk about is the humor. Specifically, this is what the review said, and this is from the Boston Globe. The most surprising thing about this movie is just how little humor or heart it has. And this one really surprised me. <laughs> I didn't quite understand how someone could come to this conclusion and I don't think this is just us being nostalgic about the movie because I think the fact that it does 
have a lot of heart is proven in the fact that people keep returning to it over time and the fact that it's still such a cultural phenomenon even today. And what I think it comes down to, whether we're talking about the heart or we're talking about the plot or the dialogue or anything, is just a matter of taste. I think maybe because this is a Disney movie, maybe because it's geared towards a younger female audience, I feel like the level of tolerance is a little bit lower and people are less inclined to give the movie the benefit of the doubt that just because it doesn't fit their taste that it could still be a genuinely good quality movie. Yeah, that's also really surprising to me because I always had the impression that Princess Diaries was a widely loved movie, but also not that gendered. Like, I guess it is a quote-unquote princess movie, but I always saw it as like a family movie. So it's not like it's a kid's movie. It's not like it's a girl movie. So I'm really surprised at how many reviews I found referred to it as such. In regards to how this review says it has so little humor, that is so stupid. <laughs> this movie is the rifest jokes. When we were watching it, we just couldn't stop laughing at all of the jokes. And enough of them were jokes that we had missed as kids, not because it's like particularly risque or anything. We just missed it because of how quick it goes. It's also naturally woven into the story and the writing that it's easy to miss. So I'm really surprised by this review. I think what they meant to say is that maybe the the humor doesn't match what they find funny but again that doesn't mean that there's no humor <laughs> it becomes more of an issue when you refuse to see the good qualities of something just because it doesn't completely align to your tastes so we will be discussing this movie chronologically as always and we open with establishing shots of san francisco this is where i want to start because this movie establishes the setting so well throughout the movie from the very beginning to the very end it's very steeped in the culture of the city and we start with sweeping shots of the bridge and the neighborhoods and the hills even like the art scene that helen mia's mother is in it's so strong and very much part of the fabric of the movie when i was younger this movie made me want to visit san francisco so badly <laughs> Definitely, I feel the same way. One of the reviews I read actually mentioned how the movie uses the shots of San Francisco to try and make itself look prettier or something like that. But that kind of comment made me think of movies like Monte Carlo and Letters to Juliet that have similarly very vibrant settings, but they don't use them to any good effect. It's sort of just like set dressing. But I think in this movie, as you said, it's so intertwined with the story and the different settings in San Francisco serve as such a great background to the characters interacting and it's all built into the story. It's almost like you couldn't take San Francisco out of the equation because it would be a very different story. To the same effect, it's built into the characters. So like these characters are the way they are because they grew up in San Francisco because they live there and their perspective is shaped by being somebody whose home is San Francisco. Like the mother's life and Mia's life and everything, you know? I think setting and stories is so important and can add 
add so much texture and depth to a story. So the fact that that is so present here is so meaningful. And I think for one, this is always present in good stories and good movies, good books, whatever. But it is something that stands out to me for Gary Marshall movies. The choice that it is for San Francisco, I think works really well because it's supposed to contrast against where Queen Clarice comes from. San Francisco itself is supposed to almost like personify the things that Mia has to consider when she's about to take up the role of princess. What is it that she might lose? And it's this really vibrant life that she already has. Yeah, and I think visually it works really well too because one of the things that I want to talk about in more detail later on is the way that this movie plays with levels because I think that's a consistent thing throughout many of the key scenes. And this includes scenes where Mia is just traveling through the city and the ups and downs of the streets. So visually and thematically, I think the choice of San Francisco works really well. I also really like how the beginning of the movie is so gentle. There's this stately music playing in the background and there's these slow sweeping shots of San Francisco. And then there's this direct contrast when the pop music starts up and Mia appears on screen. And if anything shows the contrast between her life now and what it's about to become, I think it's this. <laughs> I agree. And on that subject, the lyric that plays over the scene is something to the effect of like, I'm Supergirl and I'm here to save the world, but who's gonna save me? And that to me kind of presents one of the big themes in this movie, which is almost like the idea of something, destiny or fate or whatever, or like a bigger purpose sweeping her up and saving her from obscurity or like a normal life. But on the flip side, it's also like, who is gonna save me from the destiny itself that I might not want? And and of course, as we go through this movie and we go on this journey with Mia, we find out that the only person who can save her is herself. She has to make these decisions by herself. And so having the movie start with this, it's really interesting to me too because that destiny is both obscurity and being, you know, an invisible girl and her royalty. And they both play into this theme. That actually makes so much sense. And it sets the stage so well. As you said, it's like no matter which direction Mia goes in, it's not like one is better than the other or, you know, becoming this influential public figure is the saving grace. It's that both sides have their own pitfalls and either way Mia has to learn to help herself and come into her own. So I think that's a great message also for a younger audience because I keep bringing up reviews but <laughs> there's so many that I disagreed with. Another one that caught my eye was from the Toronto Star and it said that young girls will no doubt fall for the fantasy and I mean I suppose I can see why they're calling it a fantasy considering everything does sort of work out with a fairly neat bow and there's a happily ever after but it's not about you know if you wish hard enough you'll become a princess or something like yeah. that it's a lot more <laughs> grounded in reality and a lot of the struggles are internal and so it can apply to any situation for anyone it's not just this particular sort of fantastical out there scenario where someone might tell you one day that you're <laughs> royalty. It's also weird because like in this movie, the finding out your princess part is presented as an obstacle, not necessarily a fantasy for Mia. Mm -hmm. But actually, speaking of setting the stage, this 
first establishing sequence works really well because immediately we know that she has a fear of public speaking because her mom is giving her advice on it as she runs off to school and we immediately know that they have a really good relationship and that Mia is really clumsy because the first thing we see her you know out of the apartment is that she crashes into her neighbor's trash which also establishes the neighbor and his attitude and even on the way to school on her little electric scooter we see the royal limo pass by yeah it's like half a second and you don't catch it unless you know but it's there and it has the Genovia flag so that's also established in the very first sequence and actually that's the second time Mia misses seeing the limo because the first time it passes by just before she looks out the window so it's like even in close proximity it's like they're running in completely different spheres until their worlds collide and it's like foreshadowing that sounds like Mia gets hit by the car at some point (laughs) that would be a slightly different movie (laughs) Mia tries to sue the Genovian embassy and they're like well you can't because you'll be suing yourself surprise But yeah, this opening sequence actually ends at the school. And even then, as she arrives, we immediately meet the quote-unquote mean girls. And they're doing their little song and dance, (laughs) complete with their (laughs) names and everything. So that's a great establishing (laughs) But one of the most important things is that the principal greets her and her friend Lily. And even to the principal, she's still invisible because the principal calls her Lily's friend. She doesn't even remember Mia. Yeah, and also the fact that Mia tells Lily that someone sat on her again. Yeah. (laughs) I think they do a great job of establishing these characters without resorting to too many cliche stereotypes. I will acknowledge that there are some, but when stories want to emphasize besides the fact that it's a loner nerd. There are certain things that you would expect, but I think here they managed to do it in quite a refreshing way. You know what is actually in that scene when she arrives at school too is Michael, I think, is there sitting on the wall and he's like playing his little harmonica and he's already kind of on the outskirts of this little group. All the big players are already here, you know? Speaking of the big players, Josh is also there, the popular guy. (laughs) And this is the first time that we see Mia's infatuation with Josh and also Lily's negative reaction to anything to do with the popular crowd. I think that's good foreshadowing for what's to come as well because I think this is definitely a sensitive spot for Lily. The fact that Mia might have even a tiny bit of interest in what the popular crowd is doing. Yeah. So yes, there's a debate in Mia's class and she is nervous about speaking in front of people and she ends up completely messing it up and not being able to say her piece. And I think this is a great setup to show us Mia's character development throughout the movie because we also end this movie on a big speech that Mia has to make in front of a bunch of people. So once we get there, we can see how much she's grown and it's like all the snippets we see throughout the movie of Mia preparing to be a princess, they finally pay off and we realize how much she has matured and become more confident in the space of this movie. I also really love that the trait they focus on specifically is her fear of public speaking because it is such an inherently opposite trait to one of a princess because of how public that role would be. Yeah. 
This debate class has so many fun little details. We understand the dynamic of the student body and Mia's role in it and Lana's personality and Josh's as well, which is that he's a bit of an attention seeker. <laughs> it's very well baked into this scene where it's just like these half second details that build these characters so that as the movie goes on, we see them as people that we recognize because there have been these details that's been peppered through the movie. Mm-hmm. So Mia works at a rock climbing gym and while she's on shift, her mom arrives and tells her that her grandmother wants to meet her. And this is the grandmother on her dad's side who she basically has no relationship with and has never seen before. Even just at the mention of a grandma, Mia is so surprised and it doesn't occur to her that it might be Grandma Clarice, I guess. <laughs> at this point, what we know of her. This relationship is so non-existent that she doesn't even consider the stranger her grandmother, you know? Yeah. It gives us some really interesting backstory with Helen, the mom, because we find out that apparently this grandmother had disapproved of her relationship with Mia's father and according to Mia, had broken them up. So in Mia's eyes, at her age, this is probably what happened and this is what she has gleaned from whatever her mother told her about. About this grandmother and there are so many little details like this that really highlights her age where it's not like she's acting particularly childish but if you give it a little bit of thought it is worded in a way where you can understand that she sees it in a very particular way that is so true to someone who is 15 years old and I really liked it like the way this is worded where in her eyes this grandmother broke up her parents actually this works really well with Mia's character development and also also her getting to know her grandmother in the story because as she takes these princess lessons she also talks to her grandmother about her dad and she gets to learn later on that it was her dad's decision to take on the role of king and it wasn't like a straightforward fairy tale you know where there's the prince and the princess and there's an evil presence trying to break them up or anything like that so the thread of her gaining more perspective on the complexity of these relationships I think nicely complements just her overall growth as a character. It's also interesting that this kind of shows that even going back to before the movie starts, the grandma is this hand of fate that has decided where her life goes because that means that the grandma is the one who has decided that she has only been raised by her mother and moving forward, the grandma is the one who delivers the destiny of her royalty, you know? Like, I think that's really interesting because from the very beginning, she's already this influential entity that has shaped her life one way or another. Yeah, you're right. Considering that, I think Julie Andrews was a great choice to cast this character because I think the vibe of it could have been so completely different if they had chosen someone else. And actually, you're familiar with a much harsher Queen Clarice because she read the books. Yes, well, at least the first one. <laughs> Definitely, the character of the grandmother is very different in the book. And it says a lot that I remember that because I remember literally nothing else from the book, but that stuck with me. The amount of warmth that Julie Andrews's character has in the movie compared to the one in the books. I also really like the detail of her working specifically at a rock climbing gym, especially because it comes right after the debate class scene, because while she is very unsure of herself at the debate class and her school, in a rock climbing gym, you have to be sure of yourself. And you kind of see her being a really active part of this team at work. You know, she's pretty 
confident with her coworkers, and just the act of rock climbing itself asks a lot of you and you have to trust your body and be sure of every step that you take so it kind of shows that she already has this quality about her and this inherent certainty to her choices in some cases you know it's literally she's climbing up the wall and she has to know that every single step is the right one or else she'll like come tumbling down and I think that's a great little detail that goes along with her journey in this movie that is such a great point and I mean I've always been grateful that Mia is not one of those very stereotypical nerdy characters who is not adept at anything remotely physical. It makes her so much more of a rounded character that she's got her own strengths and interests. And you're right, it's in her all along and she's just got to discover it. And I think rock climbing also works on another level here because as Mia and her mom are talking, they're actually having this conversation while they're rock climbing. And I think this is where it struck me the way the movie plays with levels a lot because Mia and her mom actually live in a refurbished firehouse. So there's a lot of going up and down in there. And then of course, there's the ups and downs of the streets of San Francisco. And a lot of the time, it's during this uphill climb that the conflict is being set up and the descent is after the fact. So it's like the movie is following the plot's ups and downs visually. So while me and her mom are discussing her grandmother, it's on their way up on the rock climbing wall. And then after Mia agrees to meet her, that's when they climb down. I also noticed that Sohini. <laughs> They're calling someone to help them rappel down. And it's such like a great bun for the scene. It's the tension building and then the release after they come to an agreement. And it happens multiple times throughout the movie. Another instance of this happening is when Mia has found out that she's a princess and she angry at both her mom and her grandmother for hiding this fact from her so she ascends <laughs> to her tower we can talk about it more in detail then but it's like again while the conflict is escalating so are the characters physically yeah so after this we see mia back at school this time at music class and there's this point where michael is playing the piano and josh is sitting next to him pretending to play and i guess on the surface it's like a fun moment but I do think it kind of shows the emptiness of his character because it's like he's all about the show, the surface level appearance without the actual substance to back it up. But I think it also shows that like the substance that Mia is looking for in say romantic partner or friend is there in Michael, whereas the echoes of it or the exaggerated surface level version of it is there in Josh. It's not just about Josh being a showman, it's about the fact that Michael is playing the piano. That's a great way to put it. But what I actually love about the scene is the fact that after this, it transitions into a choir that Mia is part of and they sing Catch a Falling Star that extends past the scene into the next one where Mia finally goes to visit her grandmother. And for one, it's a very beautiful song and beautifully sung as well. But I love how it plays into the theme and how this falling star motif is present throughout the story because it's playing as Mia is about to encounter her first quote-unquote falling star, aka the grandma and her ancestry and her royal lineage. You know, this rare, presumably precious thing that's either very valuable or about to 
you know, burn her up. I love that it's this oncoming thing and it's happening as she's about to encounter her grandmother, her destiny. I mean, that's an amazing reading. Now that you say that and make me think about the significance of this song, it means so much that Mia sings it again near the end of the movie when she's on her way to the Grand Ball and she's stuck in the middle of nowhere <laughs> in the rain and she sings that song to herself and it could almost be her thinking back to this very first instance of being just about to meet her grandmother and learn her fate and I think because right before then she had been wavering on whether she should take on this responsibility or not I think maybe it's her thinking back on that moment in a very different light than she would have originally if she hadn't decided that she would do this after all. Yeah. She arrives at the consulate and a small detail that I really love actually is how wonderful the score is because, you know, she's being escorted in and she drops her bag on the floor and the playful score plays in time with one of the employees hopping over oh, her yeah. bag <laughs> to kind of reprimand her without saying anything mm. about the bag. Yeah, there's just so much personality, even something as simple as that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So at this point, Mia meets her grandmother, Clarice, for the first time. And the first thing Clarice says upon seeing her is, you look so young. And I think that's such a great line. There's so much subtext to it that Mia wouldn't understand because to Clarice, she's not only looking at her granddaughter, but at the future ruler of her country. And it's like the realization is dawning on Clarice in that moment that the country's future isn't quite secure yet because it's in the hands of an actual teenager. And I think this dual role of grandmother and queen is something that Clarice grapples with throughout the story. And even in the first meeting, it's already there. And I think it adds such an interesting component and complexity to the way that she interacts and forms a bond with. Mia. Yes, I love that aspect to her character and the relationship. It's so well done. I think the flip side of that is also not just Clarice realizing that Genovia is in the hands of this child, but that this child is about to be handed down a really heavy responsibility that she's about to almost ruin this kid's life, you know? <laughs> and I shouldn't be putting this on a 15-year-old. Yeah. Concern not only for her country, but also for her granddaughter especially given what we find out later on about her own son having to go through similar complex feelings when it comes to the decision of whether he wants to take on the role or not. And I'm sure she saw what it did to him and so she probably can imagine how it's going to go for Mia as well. A couple of lines that I found really perfect for underlining how young she is. I mean, you know, Clarice has already said it, but she says, you know, she has some really big news and Mia replies, I already have braces. And it's, you know, a bit of a joke, but it's also, again, showing how young she is because it shows how small Mia's world is and like what her biggest problems are as opposed to like Clarice whose issues are like the state of a nation. And I really like that contrast how unbalanced it is. You're right. Unbalanced is a great way to put it because I think 
this sense of being on completely different pages leads into the next conversation that they have, which is Clarice actually telling Mia that she is a princess and that she has to be the future ruler of Genovia. Because during this conversation, Clarice, there's the sense that her mind is already racing about the future and thinking of teaching Mia how to rule while Mia is still very much stuck, like frozen in that moment when she found out and she's still processing this gigantic shock. Because as you said, this is not even anywhere close to the realm of possibilities that she could have imagined. And I think the way this scene is shot also emphasizes how disconnected they are in this moment because we barely see them on screen together. It's always individual shots of them, more or less, until the moment Mia has had enough and she gets up and leaves. Now that you mentioned that, actually, I also really like that it's set in this sprawling garden that's very lush and put together and picture perfect. And yes, they're kind of grubbing it up with her personality. You know, she's like the least proper thing there. Also, she's in her school uniform, which is is a collection of dark colors and she's smack dab in the middle of all of these pastels and bright palettes. It's like she's like a smudge in this picture perfect reality. Yeah, that's a great observation. And it, again, the uniform highlights just how young she is and how unprepared she is for this whole thing. Actually, you talked about how Clarice was kind of already getting ahead of herself and talking about all the things that Mia can do. I actually read that as Clarice being painfully aware of the fact that being a princess is not fun. <laughs> <laughs> and she's trying to like lead with her best foot forward almost. She's trying to talk about all the great things because to me, it's like she is getting ahead of herself but in a different way in the sense that like oh god this is already going badly like no 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 you'll get all of these benefits you know mm -hmm. to me the way the actress plays those few lines it feels a little like she's already grappling for Mia's acceptance of this role mm -hmm. yeah she's kind of in a tough spot like she she's here to kind of save Genovia <laughs> she's super girl <laughs> but yeah I'd always seen that scene as Clarice already covering up the cons of being a princess or trying her best to at least. Yeah, I can see that because of course Mia's acceptance of this fact is very crucial. So I can also see how it's like she's trying to find the next best card to play. Like I know the situation isn't ideal, but hey, at least you get this and that. That could also be it. But definitely Mia doesn't take it that way because the moment Clarice mentions ruling Genovia, I feel like she was already starting to sort of disconnect from the whole thing. But I think that severed the thread completely. Clarice really made it worse. <laughs> she did not know who she was selling to. I also love that point that Mia ends with when she rattles off the reasons that she can't be a princess is that she doesn't want to. And over the course of this movie, she basically starts to understand what that means like you know the complexities of life i like that the focus is not wanting because that's the exact opposite of duty mm -hmm. and we've talked about this for example in princess and the pauper yeah it's such a complex thing and want factors very little into duty and the fact that she starts the movie with i don't want to to understanding what duty means and what this role means and finding a reason for her to want to that's a great point and it's really great that the characters around her play a really integral part 
in her coming to this realization because as you said fortunately in Mia's position it's not that she still doesn't want to by the end of the movie but she's forcing herself to it's that she's found a reason why she should want it and I think a lot of it is due to Lily making her realize the importance of this power that she has and I think her mom also and Joe and everybody each of them play a very different but important part in Mia's journey as she works through all of these very complex feelings and comes to an understanding of herself, really. Yeah. In the aftermath of this realization, she has this confrontation with her mom and I really love the scene because it's so realistic and you can understand why the parents separated the way they did it really showed that the mother Helen understood what it would mean to become a royal how her choice to step away was justified and how powerful she must have been because she did put her foot down and said like that's not me. I do not want this for myself. And I think it's a great contrast to Mia, who does end up taking up that role because they both chose the past that they did knowing full well what it would mean. I love that we do get to see that the mom has this really vibrant life and she did end up getting to live her life and becoming an artist. And you can clearly see what it is she would have given up had she stayed with Mia's father. It's almost like a really clear depiction of what it is Mia is giving up. Up, not just in Mia's life, but in her future, present in her mother's life. Yeah, you're right. It struck me that Mia's situation is very distinctly the product of two parents who made their own choice and two very different choices. It says a lot about her mom that she doesn't try to force Mia to go one way or another based on her own experiences. She never imposes the things that she would have wanted for herself on Mia. She gives her the freedom to decide for herself, which is what I think it comes down to because just having the ability to pick that path for herself, I think would mean that she never has to feel the way that her mom was scared of feeling because for her, that is what she chose for herself. I do wish that she had taken at least a little bit of responsibility for what happened with Mia being so completely blindsided by everything. And I understand her mom's decision. I think this was in her eyes a very unlikely scenario to ever happen but I still think that a part of her must have known that this could be a very unlikely but still a distinct possibility someday maybe. That's actually a detail that I also really like. It's very clear in the movie that this was fumbled. Mm. The adults fucked up and like it was a mistake but it's never treated with the solemnity that I think it deserves because it's so understandable at this point why Mia would feel betrayed and even going so far as to the next morning when the grandmother's there she feels very betrayed by both of them and the actual core of the issue is very serious that she's not being unreasonable I think that's one of my main issues with this movie is that they don't really resolve the problem at the very heart of this conflict because even in the next scene Clarice visits Mia's house and after some discussion, they agree to a compromise that Mia is going to take princess lessons until the Independence Day ball, and then she's going to decide. So she's not going to say yes or no immediately. But like, they come to that agreement 
but it's like a band-aid. It doesn't address the actual problem. And I think going forward, this kind of taints the way I look at Mia's interactions with her mom a bit because it's established from the very beginning that they're very close. And as we discussed, she is a really good mother. But whenever they're having a heartfelt moment or whenever they're interacting, it sort of feels like there's an elephant in the room <laughs> that you haven't dealt with yet. I agree with you completely. I wish they had resolved the issue better. On the subject of Clarice and Helen's conversation, I really like the repeated declarations from Helen and Clarice that Mia's parents really loved each other. Just the fact that they love each other and they decided to separate for the good of their own lives, I really liked. I think this movie does a good job of, aside from the main romantic storyline between Mia and Michael, they also have some, I don't know if unconventional is the right word, but we don't see these kinds of relationships represented on screen a lot. As you mentioned with Mia's mom and dad, and also another one that comes to mind is between Clarice and Joe, because we don't often see romantic stories lines between older characters so that was really refreshing and in this case it's great to see a parental figure who chose herself but who's not vilified for it so i think it's really great to see that helen is trying her best to be a good mom to Mia whilst also upholding her own dreams and her own interests and she's not painted as a villain for it. Actually, now that you mention it, yeah, I really love that they depict adult relationships in this and all of these different ages but also these different types of romantic relationships. Yeah, and I think that adds a great layer of nuance to the way that romance and love are portrayed in this movie as well. Because I think in a lot of films where the central focus is given to usually the young characters falling in love, it's a depiction of a very particular kind of love. Usually, you know, the one that's tied so closely to your experience of youth and coming of age and all of that. Another interesting dynamic here is actually between Clarice and Helen because for each of them, the other is kind of the antagonist in their own story. For Helen, Clarice is the reason that she and Mia's father couldn't be together. You know, Clarice represents royalty, why Mia's father couldn't be in their lives. And for Clarice, Helen represents, for one, the woman who almost took away her son from his duty, but also represents Mia, this uncertain future that Genovia is facing. And there are so many moments in the scene where you see how they're contrasted against each other. Sometimes it's played for laughs, but when you look at their characters in relation to each other and their backstory, it just paints such a rich picture, I think. And actually, another layer to this is the difference in class that is often highlighted throughout the movie. Yeah, even down to the fact that Mia's house has mismatched monks compared to the, of course, matching very flowery china at the tea. But that's a really interesting observation about the dynamic between Helen and Clarice. And I guess their uniting point is the love that they had for Philippe, Mia's dad. It's nice to see that even though both these women went in such 
different directions and might potentially not really be able to see each other's perspectives. They still don't seem to have any animosity towards each other. They can understand that everything that happened was out of love. Especially for Clarice, I think there's that added layer of seeing Helen as a source of pain for her son because it's this decision that he has to make to not be with her anymore. And so that's another layer in their relationship. But Mia literally drops into the middle of their conversation on the pole. Again, there's this thing with the levels that I was talking about and the specific instance that I mentioned where she goes up to her tower and there is this visual of the three of them being on three different levels with Helen as the intermediary between Mia and Clarice and it's like a visualization that they're still on very different pages and coming at this issue from three very different perspectives but somehow they come to an understanding. This is um, the start of Mia's princess journey. So as we ramp up to this Independence Day ball, Mia is assigned her own chauffeur and it's Joe or Joseph actually. He drives her around in this limo and she's like playing with the divider and when she apologizes you actually see the shot of Joe that I really love where he softens and immediately tries to reassure her and build this connection by offering a nickname and he says you can call me Joe. It's like the same way that Clarice is struck by how young Mia is. Joe suddenly remembers that this is a child and just like the act of offering someone a nickname is so intimate and like so nice and as this exchange goes on I actually like how it portrays this testing of boundaries because Mia <laughs> asks if she can call him Joey <laughs> and you know as this world unravels I guess further into the sequel you kind of see how deeply their bond develops through this very simple idea of a nickname and what you call somebody yeah I really like their relationship as well and the way that their bond develops their relationship has this complex layer that I don't think Mia quite has with anyone else in this movie in that she is technically his superior in terms of status because of course she's going to be the princess but she's much younger than him so I think Joe toes this line very well where he offers her these words of advice and comfort when she needs them and also reprimand if he has to but he also respects her boundaries not only as a potential member of royalty but also as a person and I think he really is that grounding force that Mia needs in the middle of all this chaos because at one point it seems like everyone wants something from her even her grandmother who loves her who understands what she's going through even her grandmother has certain sometimes unrealistic and unfair expectations of her and so I think Joe is somewhat of an oasis, like a safe space that she can turn to and who can offer her really valuable advice, like a parental figure. And I really love that life. <laughs> Joey. <laughs> <laughs> Just love the delivery of it as well. Yeah. 
I really like how you point out how Mia is of a higher status because she is the princess, but I especially love how that is actually really contrasted by the fact that somehow Joe has a lot more power than Mia does at this point because we see throughout the movie over and over and over again, he has the ear of the queen and so much of this movie is crafted by Joe's like whisperings. Mm. And it's always about Mia, but that inevitably means the nation. There's so many points in this movie when stuff is about to go one way and then Joe talks the queen in or out of it and it goes another. Yeah. Joe actually has so much power in this movie and not just that but over Mia specifically. Like Mia doesn't really understand how much of her fate is actually crafted by Joe throughout this movie. It's a good thing that he's using his powers for good. He could take down Genovia if he wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we get the goings on of Mia's life and actually a running joke throughout this movie is the school announcements over the speakers. <laughs> In this instance, it's virtual homework cannot be submitted for actual credit. <laughs> There are so many details in this movie that are like they put a lot of effort and thought into it even though it's just in the background and you can so easily miss it and it like builds such a rich world for our characters to play with. So many jokes just in the periphery. You're right. It's like a distinct feeling of a whole other world going on in the background that it adds such a depth to the setting. But we see her at school and she also visits her car that's getting fixed up at the garage where Michael rehearses with his band and where he works. But actually on the way to this garage, Mia has a conversation with Lily about her father and what it's been like, you know, after hearing the news of his death and like with the grandmother suddenly showing up. And I actually like the flippancy to which they have this conversation. It kind of illustrates how truly absent this person has been in her life. Like she doesn't actually have any emotional attachment to him apart from what she has imagined of him as a father. To me, it does a really good job at illustrating the role her father has played in her life or the lack of one. Yeah, I can see what you're saying because aside from Lily's flippant attitude about the whole thing, I think Mia is also fairly ambivalent about the whole thing. It's not like she's dealing with a massive amount of grief over the fact that her dad has passed away. But I still think there's a certain amount of regret there and maybe a wish to know what might have been. And those are also valid feelings for her to have, no matter how long it's been since this has happened. And so no matter how close Mia was to her dad, like even if the relationship was non-existent, and even if Mia is only missing the idea of the man rather than the man himself, I still think Lily's comment about, I thought you were getting over it, it's been so long already and by so long she means two months i still think it's entirely absurd and i understand that they're both very young so i can give her the benefit of the doubt and say that it stems from a place of immaturity (laughs) but it still doesn't make me see her as a great friend (laughs) (laughs) i'm totally with you i think it's so funny I think this is where we get the information that for Mia, her father means tuition. For Mia, her father means electric scooters. Yeah, the emotional side of it is completely missing. There's so many 
complex relationships in this movie and they're interwoven so well and so naturally into Mia's life and they're such integral parts of her character. I think just the character relationships were done really well in this movie. It's really interesting too that this entire time we see Mia is riding around on the electric scooter from her father. This whole time, we do see a representation of her father that's kind of like carrying her around, almost like leading her towards this path that she doesn't know she's going down. I can see what you're saying. And actually, one of the things I noticed is that so many of Mia's treasured belongings seem to be generational heirlooms passed down from her father's side. There's the necklace her grandmother gives her when they first meet. There's the notebook that her dad wanted her to have for her 16th birthday. And there's also this miniature carousel that was one of the presents her dad sent her. Even her extra names, I assume, <laughs> including her mysterious middle name <laughs> that pops up out of nowhere, I assume is handed down to her. It's like this presence of that royal side of her identity cropping up as the story moves along and as Mia starts to accept herself. It's also, like the scooter, a manifestation of not only her royal ties, but also the love and affection that her family has for her. She's surrounded by it. But we see one of the first hints that Michael is into her because she can't afford to pay for her car to get fixed and Michael offers to do some labor for free. That brings me to my main point about Michael and Mia's storyline, which is that I wish it had been developed a little bit more because we always see Michael in the sidelines and pining from afar, but I think it might have been nice to get an idea of why he likes her. Because if we contrast Michael and Mia's relationship with Joe and Mia's bond, we can see that because Joe is around Mia so much, he sees her navigating these situations in life and we can see why he becomes fond of her and becomes so confident in her ability to eventually become the princess of Genovia. And similar to Michael, he's always around in the sidelines and watching. But I think we don't really get the same amount of depth in Michael and Mia's interactions. And I think for that roundedness in the story and in Michael and Mia's relationship, I just would have liked a little bit more. You're right. I'm not quite sure why he likes her. I do think we get a realistic relationship between them and that like they do get mad at each other. They do make mistakes and there are these tiny ups and downs between friends. But you're right. The affection between them isn't as well explored, I think, as it could have been. You know, I never got the sense that his feelings were superficial and only based on looks because I think they do that well because of Michael being Lily's brother it's clear that they spend a lot of time around each other and know each other well and so the fact that he likes her is believable and the fact that he would like her for her personality over just like a shallow infatuation is very clear I just want to know exactly what it is yeah same but these days, Mia's day-to-day -day actually consists of princess lessons at the consulate. Included in Mia's princess lessons are manners and etiquette, 
as well as dancing. And in these scenes, we get quite a lot of great physical comedy. <laughs> I think throughout, you can tell that Mia's not really taking it that seriously. <laughs> and I think that's a good indication of the fact that she still doesn't quite know what she's in for. It's a bit of a limbo of a situation because she hasn't said yes or no to this position yet. But I think either way, she doesn't quite understand what it entails. You're right. At this point, she is treating it a lot like a chore because it's something to appease her mother and grandmother. At the end of the dancing lesson, for example, she's let go and everyone there knows that she's there just because she has to because the grandmother acknowledges it, you know, now you can go because I know that you've been waiting to leave this whole time. Yeah, you're right. And I think the beach party might have been the turning point when she really realizes what she's in for. You're right. I want to talk about the dancing scene because after Mia leaves, Joe and the Queen end up dancing together and it's so sweet. But I also love that it is clearly implied that this is an open secret that they're in love or at least you know that they have affection for each other and something that is apparent and I quite like that and just the idea of these two people like still finding a moment to enjoy each other's company and have a short romantic moment. I think a pitfall that some movies easily fall into is that the minor characters can be somewhat flat. I think this movie does such a great job of giving life to pretty much every character that appears on screen, even if it's just for a fleeting moment. And this includes Charlotte, who I think is the queen's assistant. When she stumbles onto Joe and Clarice dancing, she backs away and gives them their privacy. And she's also smiling knowingly. Things like this really give the impression that they're not just stock characters who have to be there to progress the story, but all these characters have very personal ties and they're real people. It not only adds more life to the story, but it also makes us care about these characters more. This movie has great world building. I mean, from the school announcements to things like this. All of these lessons culminate in a classic makeover with Paolo and his <laughs> assistants. An iconic makeover scene. Probably one of the best known ones. Yes. So I have mixed feelings about this makeover scene. I mean, it's iconic and so I love it in that capacity. But also, of course, they're changing things about her to conform to generic beauty norms, including straightening her curly hair and making her take off the glasses. But what I do like is when Clarice sees her, she doesn't fawn over her like she's so much more beautiful. She says that Mia looks better, which makes me think that it's less about beauty and more about just making Mia look the part, mostly more mature and, you know, someone who can take responsibility for a whole country. In this sense, I think they do such a great job of styling Anne Hathaway based on the needs of the scene because when she's at home and at school, I think you mentioned this while we were watching, she looks the age that Mia is supposed to be, but her makeover leaves her looking so much older and I think this is what the characters are trying to achieve in that scene is just make her look more suited to the role that they're trying to give her to make her look like the ruler that they're trying to make out of her yeah to get her taken seriously exactly it's kind of like armor to prepare her this makeover leads into Lily's outburst so Lily's giving her a really hard time about the new look and she's 
kind of tearing up over it. She's very hurt. And Lily makes comments about like, oh, you're just trying to fit in with like the A crowd and blah, blah, blah. And I really felt for Mia in this moment for a lot of reasons. But like this feeling of having been bullied when you're yourself, but also feeling judged when you try to fit in a little better, which is like not always a bad thing to just try to fit in. You're just trying to make it easier for yourself. It just feels very relatable and very true to somebody at this age. And I know that's not what Mia is actually doing. Like her reasons aren't actually that, but it just occurred to me that that would be a reality of probably a lot of the audience of this movie. And while Lily's being very mean, I think it's also very realistic for her to feel this way and act this way because from her perspective it is a little weird like what is up with Mia I think it's safe to assume that Mia has echoed Lily's sentiments in the past not wanting to be one of those girls the core of this issue for Lily is the idea that Mia is slowly leaving her and again we see Joe being um kind of a safe haven for her because he does try to reassure her I mean yeah you're right I never liked Lily in this scene because, you know, that feeling you were talking about where you're going to get judged either way. I think it's especially horrible when it comes from someone you hoped would understand from your best friend. So I always felt so bad for Mia in this scene and I still do. But thinking about everything we've seen so far with the successive scenes of Mia constantly canceling on Lily and suddenly showing up looking so different, I can sort of understand that Lily is worried about the two of them drifting apart because as I mentioned even in the beginning of the movie Lily expressed worries about Mia being more fascinated than annoyed by the popular crowd so maybe part of her has always been worried that Mia will eventually leave her and what that entails is Mia coming into her own and gaining more confidence and Lily just not being good enough for her anymore I think maybe at this point Lily thinks that that's finally coming into fruition. I think a part of it could definitely be a lack of self-confidence for Lily thinking that Mia has that potential, that option to become a part of the popular crowd whilst Lily doesn't. I really like that Lily doesn't express this directly. You know, the way when we're talking about Jumanji, the way that they air their grievances out so explicitly. Instead, Lily talks about more surface level complaints about Mia's hair, her bag, about the fact that Mia ditched her when she needed her for some petition. All of this is covering up the real root of the issue that we get into later on. But I think this insecurity is actually really well conveyed in the subtext. Yeah, the fight keeps building to the point where Mia has to tell Lily the truth. And so she does. And a detail I liked here is Mia's little frustrated jump. (laughs) The characters are always interacting with their settings as well. With Mia, when she was arguing with her mom, she's in the kitchen fixing herself a snack. She's in the bathroom putting her retainer on. When she and Michael are talking and she's apologizing, Michael is uh, messing around with this mask that was on the table. They're always doing things. (laughs) It feels very natural and really integrates the setting as well as the background characters as a part of the story. To that point, actually, the set design is impeccable. (laughs) Yeah. They do such a good job of building such distinctive sets that feeds into the character. Exactly. Especially your use of the word distinct. I think each setting has such a distinct personality, especially... um, Mia's house is just brimming with character. It looks like a lived-in and comfortable place, but it's also cluttered and perhaps 
reflects the less polished personality of Mia and her mom when compared to Clarice's residence. So at one point, Michael basically asks Mia out. Yeah, not that he admits it. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that Mia is comfortable enough with him to even ask, like, is this a date? And it's clear that they're friends. And she doesn't seem that opposed to the idea of a date either. I think it is understood that it's supposed to be like an almost date. Yeah. But interrupting their little moment is a swarm of reporters at the school. And it's gotten out that Mia is a granddaughter of Queen Clarice and suddenly she's in the spotlight and even Lana is claiming to be Mia's best friend to get the press's attention. Mia's mother and her grandmother are both called into the school and there's so much going on in this scene. <laughs> I couldn't handle it, but I also loved it. Just to give a couple of examples, there's the principal in the background imitating Clarissa's mannerisms. There's Joe who has brought in Paolo, who was the one who leaked the secret. And Joe is repeatedly holding Paolo back. And then there's Clarice who's gagging at the tea that she's been offered. <laughs> A lot of it isn't really related to the main issue. But again, I think it's related to what we discussed before, which is that this sense of each character having their own thoughts and impulses that they're following. And in other movies, it almost seems like the side characters exist solely to serve the main character's purpose. And so in this scene with Mia suddenly in the spotlight, it would seem like every character would be geared to cater towards this crisis but everyone's just sort of doing their own thing and it's so much more realistic because everyone is the main character in their life and I think the sort of random <laughs> behavior really reflects that well. Yeah, all of it has such perfect comedic timing and they all feed into each other. Yeah. In this scene, we see Mia smiling and she looks so amused. And it's in the moment that Clarice kind of finesses her way into sending the principal on her way. And Mia looks like she's finally seen Clarice be human. Yeah, I think it would be interesting for Mia to see how her grandmother handles a situation like this because it's the first moment of crisis that Mia is witnessing her grandmother handle. And I think the way Clarice gets rid of the principal, she sort of tricks her into leaving and it's, it's a little bit sly and it goes completely against the image we would have of a queen, you know, who would be polished and upstanding at all times. And I think it could very well be that this is the first human glimpse that Mia gets of Clarice. And I think this sort of thing is built upon in the later scene when they're going around San Francisco and the thing with the trolley happens where her grandmother has to talk them out of trouble with the police. So at this point, the main question is whether Mia will actually take on this role of princess now that everyone has found out. And the answer that Mia gives is that she'll think about it. I really love actually the moment in the scene where the mom explicitly tells her, you don't have to do this. I like that she has a choice. And I feel like that's something that keeps being reiterated throughout the movie, that this is a choice she has to make. I also like that we see a progression in Mia's attitude here because even Clarice comments on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have a really nice moment following this 
But I would like to point out the fun little thing that's happening here is the school announcement. Oh, yeah. Will the feng shui club please stop rearranging the tables? <laughs> <laughs> this is my favorite one. She's just kind of wallowing alone in the basketball court. And the little tidbit that we get here from Lily is that everyone is kind of fawning over her now. Yeah. But Lily actually invites her to be on her cable show. Shut up and listen. A great name for a cable show. I don't know how I feel about this. As soon as Lily asks, it kind of breaks my heart a little. Yeah. Because it feels like the only person who doesn't want anything from her should be Lily, but that's not the case. And I know that she doesn't mean harm by it. Yeah, I definitely understand that because to me, Lily's reaction to finding out Mia's secret, there was always something a little bit off about it. And I think the reason is that she immediately invites Mia onto her talk show before Mia tells her that, no, this is a secret. Immediately, it does seem a little bit selfish. And almost like when she realizes Mia's influence, she's immediately trying to leverage it. But I think with the conversation Lily and Mia have later on, you can just see that Lily just overall has a much more different perspective to this whole thing. And she's immediately aware of the potential power that her friend now has, and she just wants to use it for a good cause. But yeah, I think that doesn't preclude either Mia or us from being <laughs> a little bit hurt. And I think in this scene also, Lily's insecurity pops up again because she not only calls Mia the most popular girl in school, but she also says that everyone wants to be her best friend now. And again, it's that fear of losing Mia popping up. And I guess this is like, while Mia is trying to figure out how to handle this double-edged sword, Lily has her own double-edged sword where she wants to use her friend's influence, but she's also scared by it, scared that her friend is going to leave her behind. So I think that makes her a very complex and interesting character. Now that I think about it, I think we are kind of supposed to think that at this point, somehow Lily hasn't separated herself from the eager masses and we had expected better of her. Now that I put it that way, I actually like this turn. We're not supposed to understand where she's coming from yet until later on because I don't think it was ever clear before that what it is Lily likes about Mia's situation. It is supposed to be a revelation. Yeah, she said she's made a list of pros and cons of being a princess and all she lists in this scene are cons so I think you're right I think the movie deliberately keeps this perspective from us and it's almost like Lily feels more entitled to Mia's time yeah because they're friends because she's like all of a sudden everyone else is paying attention to you but we're friends you know their demands are unjustified but this is the least you can do for me your best friend one thing I really like in this scene is the play with the levels because Mia is going up and down the bleachers while she's deliberating this whole issue, going back and forth about wanting to take on the role of princess. And again, it's like a physical manifestation of the dilemma that she's facing, the inner conflict that's being projected outward. We get this lovely transition of Mia walking down the steps of the bleachers into her walking down the stairs as they have a dinner at the consulate. So many characters at the party. <laughs> yes. I love the prime minister. He and his wife are two of my favorite characters. There's also the silent guy who sits next to the queen. 
yeah. Anyway, dinner goes disastrously. It goes less than stellar for sure. Mia sets a man's arm on fire. She gets brain freeze. She breaks a glass. And at the end, she crawls under the table and basically causes all-around chaos. You know what I realized this time around is that it's not her fault. You know who did that? The guy who suddenly got up and stomped away. He was the one who wasn't looking where he was going and tripped over her. She still set a man's arm on fire. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> but luckily, Mia has both her mom and her grandmother to comfort her. Neither gets mad at her the thing actually that really struck me here is when she goes home and she turns on the little carousel music box from her dad and says you know sorry to let him down and in this moment i wonder what was the impression she was under I understand liking the idea of him instead of the person himself. I understand a disconnect, like a lack of emotions, but it doesn't seem that way here. It seems like she does have an affection for her father and that she perhaps like sees the crumbs that he gives her as overwhelming affection from him. Maybe it's stemming from the fact that she's stepping into his shoes bit by bit and this is also the first time that she experiences the reality of her situation maybe it could just be that finally there's this emotional layer to this sparse barely there relationship because finally she's understanding the implications of her dad's choice this is the kind of difficult responsibility that he chose to shoulder because of the love he has for his country. And I guess now that she's stepping up to that same position, it's like filling in the blanks just by going through the same motions and similar obstacles and everything that her dad must have done. You're right. It's not that she's always adored him. I think it's just that she has developed this connection with him through this experience. You're right. And so it would also make sense why she asks Clarice about her dad in the next scene. Because she's curious now and so in the next scene we actually see Clarice comforting Mia and I think it's really sweet that Clarice understands that despite you know everyone at the party not really taking this that seriously Mia still feels really bad about it so Clarice decides they can ditch princess lessons for today and they decide to spend the day together exploring San Francisco. They bond and this is when Clarice tells her about her father. It's a sweet moment. Clarice says the love he had for one person or even two could not make him forget the love he had for his country and his people. It's a sweet sentiment, but honestly, it's not very nice to hear from Mia. As much as it may have been true and noble and respectable and all that jazz, I think I would want my parent to choose me over all of that. I know that's selfish, but I think it's a feeling that would be present in Mia, especially if she's never had a relationship with her father, however much she has accepted that and come to terms with that. And maybe she's never had any bad feelings about it. That could very much be true. But now that this is all suddenly dug up again and she is presented with this new picture of her father, I don't think it sounds as nice as Clarice thinks it does. Like, it's nice for a Genovian, <laughs> but not for Mia. I don't know, the love of a nation? This is, again, my problem with... And later on, she says this, wanting to not let Genovia down. I don't think they do a good enough job of establishing what Genovia means to Mia. Yeah, you're right. I think this anecdote from Clarice would have worked if we establish a connection between Mia and Genovia beforehand. Yeah. Part of what this is, is kind of showing Mia like why someone would want 
to step into that role. To paint a picture of her father, but also to kind of guide her towards her future. But like, okay, her father loved his country and his people. This isn't Mia's people. What would this be in Mia's context? What does this mean? for Mia in her journey towards stepping into this role. You make a good point. There really isn't any connection, any reason for Mia to feel any sort of responsibility towards the people of Genovia. It also bugged me that Clarice is painting this whole picture about like her father being noble for choosing Genovia over Helen and Mia. But in the same breath, basically, she's also talking about how Philippe's brother abdicated so that he can enter a different kind of life in a church or like a religious one. And it's like, okay... So Philippe's brother could do that, and that's also seen as noble. But I found it really selfish of Philippe's brother to abdicate just to become a fucking nun. (laughs) Philippe had a daughter! And I think it was fine of Philippe's brother to do this. Maybe he also has a lot of problems with the idea of taking up the role of king. And that was his saving grace to step into this other life that would let him abdicate. That our society sees as something acceptable to do and will always be above any mortal desires. (laughs) Sure, that can be acceptable for him to abdicate. But that's because this is happening in a world and in a society where people see that specific choice as above everything else. And like, Philippe, I'm sorry, but he also had a duty to his daughter. Yeah. What they don't realize they're doing with the way it's phrased, they accidentally equate the duty Philippe's brother had to the brotherhood with the duty that Philippe had to his daughter. So in the world where they are both in line to be king, Philippe's brother chooses the quote-unquote noble duty to his brotherhood, and Philippe doesn't choose his noble duty to his daughter. You know what I mean? They accidentally make that connection. Because it is said literally in the same breath. I think that's interesting, the idea that Philippe's brother was being noble by abdicating while Philippe was being noble by taking on the role. Now that you've put it that way, I can definitely see some more complex undertones. But another way to maybe read that line that Clarice says is not necessarily that the two things are equal in Philippe's mind, but he's just doing what he has to do, not what he wants to do. It's like similar to Mia's whole stance in the beginning. Yeah. I think also the way this scene plays out is really interesting because we do not get a shot of Mia finding a tweet. This is what prompts me to feel the way that I do and to bring up the fact that this is not a sweet sentiment for Mia because she doesn't react like it is. Yeah. It feels like something she has to swallow. Mm Mm-hmm. We talk about how Clarice has trouble with balancing being a grandmother Mm. and a queen. And I think this is one of the moments where the fact that she's had to deal with these macro issues has kind of blunted her humanity and her awareness of these more minute and delicate sensibilities. Yeah, that's... A great point. I think for her, it's like an assumption almost that because of her lineage, Mia should also just automatically have that connection to the people and put them first and foremost the same way she does and the same way Philippe did. She must be so used to being diplomatic all the time that when it comes to close personal people, she becomes the complete opposite (laughs) kind of tone deaf. (laughs) I think Mia's relationship with Her dad is painted in a very bittersweet light and it's fitting 
So now that everyone knows that Mia is a princess, she's kind of getting a little more attention and Josh actually asks her out to the Baker Beach party. Mia and Josh go to this beach party together. So they spend the day together doing various activities such as going on his boat and dancing awkwardly (laughs) in circles. I think that perfectly captures the awkwardness of teen romance, honestly. Yeah. But in the middle of all this, the reporters manage to find them and Mia and Josh take shelter in this shed. And I think this is where the romance starts wearing off very quickly. (laughs) Mia has a dream of her first kiss where her foot pops. I like what happens with this because like, you know, it fails to pop in the moment and then later on when she kisses the right guy, her foot does pop. But I think it would have been interesting if it doesn't get a full pop, but like it lives and it's like stuck in the net just like in her dream sequence with the gum. And then when she actually kisses her quote-unquote right guy, Michael, she doesn't get a pop, but it's better. It's like shattering her perception of what a good first kiss should be. And in this one, it's even better because she doesn't get left behind. She isn't stuck. There's no gum on her shoe. It's effortless. Yeah. I think it would have been even better if there was a whole thread going on with shattering her image of, you know, what her romantic partner should be like. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it would have been slightly less simplistic than it is, which is that it just won't pop and it'll only happen when it's the one. But yeah, Mia doesn't fortunately get her foot popping kiss (laughs) with Josh in the shed. But Josh tells Mia that the coast is clear, but when they leave the shed, it turns out the reporters have just been hiding and they all jump out at once. And in the middle of all this, Josh kisses Mia and she smacks him with her flip-flop, which I thought was well-deserved. She runs away and we get this horrid scene where the reporters keep chasing her and Lana and her <laughs> and her bananas trick Mia. They usher her into this tent, assuring her that they're gonna keep lookout, but then they lead the reporters there and basically Mia gets photographed while she's trying to change into her clothes and all of it culminates in a bunch of newspaper articles that Mia's grandmother is very disappointed by and the next scene is Clarice basically telling Mia that maybe it would be a good decision to abstain from the position of princess. Maybe she isn't really built for this life after all. It's horrifying what Lana did. It's so bad. (laughs) It's like a straight up crime, right? It must be. Surely, it definitely feels like it. This happens and then Mia is like, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I guess it does drive home how much of an impact this incident makes because it does drive Mia away from the throne. I guess it also speaks to the influence that shitty things like this can have. Yeah, I think a big thing here was Mia feeling like she disappointed her grandmother because even when Clarice realizes that it wasn't really Mia's fault and tells her that she does believe in her should she choose to accept the position. That is one of the reasons Mia gives. Aside from letting the people of the country down, she says that she couldn't bear to let her grandma down again. Because, you know, we were talking about how Mia doesn't really have a reason to have such a connection to Genovia. I think... It's bridged by her grandma. Yeah, she's the only connection left between Mia and Genovia. And by letting her grandma down, it's like, by extension, also letting her dad down. I think this is the first time it's articulated by Joe that Clarice is having trouble balancing her roles as queen and grandmother, which is so nice. But it's also so clear, I think, that Joe 
not only is perceptive enough to be able to see this, but he is literally the only person that can tell the queen this. Yeah. <laughs> he's kind of like the advisor, right? He takes up that role. He's not an advisor, but he takes up that role. And he's styled like an evil advisor. <laughs> Joe is styled exactly like that, except... He's the good guy, and he's clearly the good guy, and he's written as the good guy, and he's portrayed as the good guy. It's just just because he likes black. <laughs> <That's so laughs> they play around with this convention in a really fun way, I think. Yeah, I suppose you are right. <laughs> <laughs> You're so upset by it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I also really like that here Joe reminds Clarice that she's holding Mia to very unfair standards and also her granddaughter and at the same time I also do like that the previous time we saw Mia sort of mess things up her grandmother was understanding so we can see that it's not that she'll come cracking down every time Mia has a misstep her grandmother can be understanding that just humanizes her more I think she also makes mistakes. I think an interesting layer here also is to go back very briefly. There's this thing where the coverage implies that Mia's scandal is sexual because the pictures are that she kisses Josh and then she's in nothing but like a blanket or something. Right. It's supposed to imply certain things about her promiscuity and that changes everything about how the public views her and specifically for somebody in this public figure role how a woman and especially a young woman's worth and value is so tied into her sexual history or just her promiscuity and it's such a prevalent thing that even her grandmother not that her grandmother thinks less of her now or anything but it does affect how her grandmother reacts to the scandal specifically yeah and the initial reaction Clarice also has is like why didn't Mia know better? Why wasn't she smarter? And that works in the context of the movie itself but I think it could be applied to more serious situations as well where the blame in case anything goes quote wrong is is automatically on the woman. After all of this, she's back to being bullied at school, basically. She's made fun of, and she had forgotten to tell Lily that she had the Baker Beach party, and so she missed the cable show. I think she wasn't even paying attention to what she was agreeing to when she said she would go on Lily's show, because she was so preoccupied. Yeah, but they have a little fight, and I really like this fight. I think it's realistic, and they both air their grievances, and they fight like friends do. They say everything, you know? They're not scared enough that they would hold back. I like them throwing the basketball back and forth while they're talking. And there's also this part where Lily is bouncing it between her hands while she's confessing that she was jealous of Mia. It's like she's not ready to toss the conversation piece back to Mia yet. Again, it's like such a natural way for the characters to interact with their surroundings. This is one thing this movie does really well and also really consistently throughout, which I really like. Yeah, and Mia confesses to Lily that she's not even going to take up the role of princess. And Lily is stunned by this. She starts to express how she sees things. And it's a really wonderful perspective, I think. Yeah. 
And the way she words it is also very Lily. I love how it's so tailored to the way Lily speaks, you know? Mm -hmm. I hate when characters become mouthpieces for the people behind the movie. And especially when they're trying to get the big ideas across, suddenly the dialogue becomes very generic, very high level. Like they're talking to the audience, basically. And it takes you out of the story. But here, it feels very ingrained to Lily's character that she would say these things and react this way. I wonder what is the difference here that is informing their differing views. The way I see it, it's like an internal versus external perspective because for Mia, this whole thing has been extremely personal this whole time like from the minute she found out about this whole thing she's been grappling with the consequences this will have for her life and for herself she hasn't even reached that point of deciding how she's going to use her influence because I think she doesn't even realize that she has it until Lily points it out because all this time she's been looking very inward which is fair enough whereas I think Lily is just used to thinking more about the larger issues throughout the film she's always campaigning for different causes and she immediately becomes aware of the potential influence that Mia has gained and so it's like a compliment to the way Mia has been thinking so far it's just like not a different perspective just like the other side of the coin trying to widen Mia's perspective basically you're right that is the difference but you know they make up and Mia invites Lily to the ball and she sees Michael when he drops off her car after it's being fixed and it's so clear the entire time that Michael is actively mad at her yeah they're just talking at each other and she's trying desperately to break through the icy exterior but to no avail even when she offers him an invite to the fancy party he's like Josh would look better in a tux <laughs> yeah <laughs> and this is where you know for a fact that Michael's the guy for her because he doesn't give her any leeway. Yeah. And like Lily, he's not afraid to be mad at her and push her away because at the end of the day, you know, they will still be friends. And he doesn't forgive her when she uses her princessy privileges. It's only when she apologizes in a personal way that he comes around. He clearly cares about her for who she is rather than who she has the potential to become. Yeah. So Mia stands up to Lana at the cafeteria. I also really like how it's when they're extensively picking on Jeremiah, who has been sort of like a fun background character, but it's when they're picking on him that Mia finally snaps. And it's very satisfying to finally see her standing up for Jeremiah, but also herself. It actually is like kind of her first step of like starting to fight for other people the way we assume she will as a princess. Yeah, and it makes sense that it happens in her world and then she'll slowly start extending that out to a much larger field of influence. Well, we finally get to the ball and in the run-up to it, the queen visits and apologizes for her attitude. Like you said, this is where Mia says, I couldn't bear to disappoint you again. And I love this phrasing and I think this is another reminder to the queen that she is dealing with a child. She can't yet imagine and extrapolate the ramifications of her actions for a nation, for the politics. Like, what will this do when I have to get something through parliament? <laughs> the way she sees things is still, how do I live up to my parental figure's expectation? Her world is still so confined and I think this is a really sad realization 
position in the queen because she understands how much she fucked up. There's this shot where the queen expresses her belief in Mia and how much she actually still wants Mia to step up and take the throne, but Mia brushes her off. And there's a shot of the queen like kind of disappointed in herself because she handled this really badly. And I thought that was really illuminating yeah i think they both help each other to widen their perspectives a bit i think it's also like clarice has lived a life of isolation for so long like i think we forget that clarice just lost her son (laughs) so it's like she has to reconnect for the first time in a while with a family member and not just that but a family member who is so unfamiliar with the customs of royalty yeah you're right Basically, Mia plans to run away, but she finds a letter from her dad that he had written for her in the journal that he had wanted her to have on her 16th birthday. What do you think of this letter? I think it's written from the perspective of someone who puts his country before everything else and similar to Clarice, assumes that Mia is going to do the same. In the context of Mia wavering between this decision of whether to take on the position or not, it gives her the courage that she needs to grab onto this with both hands and really embrace her identity. But he doesn't know that this is how it would have gone. He hasn't written it with the intention of, ah, this will give her the push she needs. It's written with a lot of presumptions in mind. And had Mia been in a different situation, had she had a much different perspective, had she resented her dad much more had she had a horrible experience with this whole thing and not at all wanted this position not at all wanted anything to do with her grandmother i don't think she would have appreciated this letter one bit (laughs) he wrote this expecting to in like two years time reveal her royalty and so like to impart an important lesson on her 16th birthday about bravery and duty and courage it would have been fine but my impression of this letter isn't necessarily about like what effect it would have on Mia which I fully agree with you you're right this letter could have gone either way it's the fact that it's supposed to be a letter for his 16th birthday and it is the least personal thing anyone can ever write he doesn't know anything about her (laughs) exactly it's very motivational poster (laughs) (laughs) to me it just highlights further the fact that he doesn't know anything about her he doesn't have anything personal to say it's not even about like mia Mm. the whole thing with mia's father in this movie is such a mixed bag for me like everything she gets from her father is so hollow but it's so jarring because the movie doesn't treat it that way This letter is a prime example of that, and it's framed like it's a fatherly anecdote, not a kingly anecdote. Yeah, I can see what you're saying, and I think they're trying to make the connection deeper than it is. I feel like Mia and Joe have more of a closer father-daughter type relationship than anything we've seen between Mia and the remnants of his memory because when Mia's planning to run away she's stuffing this journal that he gave her and the carousel into her bag and it does make me wonder what those things mean to her really especially the carousel I mean it's beautiful yeah but is it something you take with you when you're leaving your home for what you think is going to be a long time. I wish the movie had just stuck with the idea that Mia didn't know how she felt about him passing and that is an interesting concept and one that they did start off with. Yeah, the movie was a bit too preoccupied trying to put Philippe 
in a good light for some reason. Yeah, and I don't think you need to. He made a difficult choice. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he was a bad person for making the choice that he did. Like, it's fine. But I think what's bugging me is the fact that the movie wants us to think that he was perfect or like that Mia should think him perfect. Yeah. And I disagree strongly. But the letter has an impact on Mia in any case. And she decides that she won't run away. She will take on this position after all. And there's this shot of her opening Fat Louis' cage as she tells him that the trip is off. And in a way, it's also like she's setting herself free by putting aside her misgivings and taking the burden of expectations off of herself and accepting herself for who she is. So we see her zip off to the ball, except not really because her car <laughs> fails and there's a rainstorm and she gets stuck. I really like that we had this whole thing with Michael dropping off her car because it gives us a reason for her to have transport to go. Mm. I also really like that she crashes into the neighbor's trash bin. It's like a callback to mm. the beginning, right? And it's like she is choosing to become a princess, but she will never lose Mia either. <laughs> yeah. But this is where the falling star motif comes back and she sings it in time for Joe to arrive with a limo. And I really like this because the first falling star is this revelation of her royalty and her grandmother and everything that comes with it. And here the falling star is Joe and his white horse, but also her path towards the throne. It's like a callback to the first falling star, that destiny or that choice or whatever. That's a great way to read it. I have a somewhat less coherent and more absurd read of this scene. Go on. We get a shot of the wipers that are still going even after the car is stalled, fighting a futile battle <laughs> against the rain. And it's almost like a metaphor for Mia because up until now, <laughs> she's still been going despite facing so many hurdles. And it's like the car is a symbol for Mia. She was a bit of a fixer-upper and there's times when she started and then she stopped and it wasn't a smooth ride. And her grandmother even funded the repairs for the car <laughs> the same way she's been supporting her throughout this whole journey. And at the moment where both she and the car are in need. She can count on people like Joe for support. So I think the car is a symbol for Mia. Yeah. Mia is car. I agree. Mia is car. <laughs> so Joe saves her and takes her to the ball. As I mentioned before, I really like how the story is capped with public speaking on both ends. And I especially like that here she gives the speech as very much herself in that she doesn't have that armor that makeover gave her and it's even down to the boots that she's wearing are the same ones that she was wearing at the first debate at school and that people were laughing at her for <laughs> they shoot it really similarly too yeah there's definitely a parallel there and as not subtle as it might be i think it serves to really emphasize Mia's character development. I really like the boots actually because her grandmother also told her when she first started the princess lessons that I never want to see you wearing those boots again. <laughs> but of course she does because it's as you said, you know, with knocking into the bins, she's going to do it as herself. And if that means <laughs> disobeying the queen, she's still going to do it. Yeah, and she makes a speech that, like you said, really highlights that it's shaped by the people around her, but especially 
especially Lily. I think it's clear that the decision to step into this role is just influenced by Lily. It's all down to Lily and Joe. Yeah. They're both Supergirl. The real heroes. <laughs> I also really like how she says, would it be like to have people smarter than her be heard? Because it's clear that the role that she will take up is not about like, I will know what's best, but I will be the mouthpiece for people who are smarter than me, like her best friend Lily. And I really like how that's framed. Yeah, it's a promising indication that she truly understands what this role entails, what it means to be a leader. But from this perfect scene, we go into one that is quite the opposite. Because what is the plan of the dance at the ball? <laughs> because it seems like they've assigned someone to the queen and not Mia. Mia is supposed to stand there looking at the fucking crowd, looking for her own fucking partner. <laughs> like, that is my worst nightmare, not to mention Mia's. That always struck me as so strange that they did that. Because there are so many people there who could cover for her and act as her dance partner. There's Joe. There's Jeremiah. There's Lily. Yeah, there's her grandmother. It's also cute that the queen is dancing with the prime minister but then joe cuts in i think it says a lot about like how much of an open secret it is you know the whole country knows <laughs> Mia and Michael actually sneak away, except they're not sneaky about it at all. Yeah. <laughs> but they sneak away to the garden and she has her first foot pop and kiss and the garden lights up. Yeah, it's pretty and everything, but I have to say that their conversation to me feels a bit half-baked. He doesn't mention her apology. He doesn't really say anything about anything before just jumping in with why me and... <laughs> It's like, I understand that the romance between them is not a central thread, but it almost felt like they had a whole conversation and then they just took out snippets of it and the rest is just missing. It was a slightly incomplete conclusion to their arc. My problem with that is that it's so generic, like, why me? Because you saw me when I was invisible. And I guess, like, a classic's a classic, but, like, this movie had done such a good job at not doing stuff like that. Yeah, it shouldn't be on the surface like that. That line makes me roll my eyes so hard. It's already ingrained into their interactions that he sees her for who she truly is, and titles and everything else aside. It's already apparent that they have a connection on a very fundamental level that's beyond beyond all of this extra fluff and I think this final scene does a disservice to everything they've built up so far. I know you said like it seems like things are missing. I feel the opposite. I actually wish they had done it in a way that there was no dialogue here. That's about it. Afterwards Mia moves to Genovia. Yeah. So in absurd conclusion, Mia is car. <laughs> <laughs> that will be our takeaway for this episode. Have your opinions changed and would you recommend this movie? You know, initially going into this, I was worried that I only liked this movie because I grew up watching it. But no, I think it's got a lot of merit. So no, my opinions haven't changed at all. I thought it was a great movie. I still think it's a great movie. And I think people, for some reason, are judging it too harshly based on maybe what they think it will be or what they expect it to be. But I think if they open their minds a little bit, I think there's a lot in here for many different types of demographics to enjoy. So I definitely recommend this movie. 
my opinion definitely hasn't changed either. I thought it was an excellent movie. I still do. But I think even if you did like this movie, I don't think you liked it as much as you should have. <laughs> so yes, I highly recommend this movie for anybody. This year we're doing a new little segment where we recommend a pairing for each movie, a snack if you will. I love that you phrased it that way because I was gonna recommend pairs <laughs> for this movie. <laughs> You know what? I will recommend string cheese. Yeah, that's another great one. If you only have snapped off fingers from statues, that will also do. <laughs> oh, M&Ms are also a good option. Ooh, yes. And if you have a pizza lying around, <laughs> perfect combination. Or, you know, you can also contemplate complex relationships with your father with a corn dog. Good suggestion. Yeah, if you have some unresolved issues you need to think through, then that's your go-to. So that's all for this episode. If you have any suggestions for movies we should discuss on the podcast, send them in at graveyard underscore slot on Twitter and Instagram or email us at thegraveyardslot at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of The Graveyard Slot. <laughs>